we have many signs pointing to a created reality. Now, for this morning, we are just going to look at one of them. Now, we're going to look at a sign that points to great joy. And we're going to look at the first sign that Jesus did. The first sign that signifies his ministry. The sign that is a hallmark of who he is, what he came to do, and what he has to offer. We're going to look at the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned the water into wine. So if we have the next slide, we're going to read from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, like I said earlier, signs are a lesser reality pointing to a greater reality. And we're going to see how this sign points to a greater reality from three different perspectives. We're going to look at how, we're going to, look at, we're going to see how this sign points to Jesus as the true bridegroom, sipping the true wine, providing true festive joy. So let's start with the first. The true bridegroom. Through this sign, Jesus indicates who he is. The true bridegroom. The one who provides. Now in ancient Israel, it was the responsibility of the bridegroom and his family to provide everything. Not just for the couple getting married, but for everyone attending the wedding feast. And wedding feasts didn't go on for one day. They went for, on for about seven days. Imagine seven days of celebrating up every morning. What am I going to drink today? Oh, the wedding feast is on. For a whole seven days. And that's, I can't really imagine that. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine one day it's like, oh yeah, great, it's over. Back to life, but seven days, that'd be fantastic, I reckon. Get <laughs> <laughs> some time off work, yeah. I mean, the whole town attended because in those days the emphasis wasn't so much on the individuals getting married, but on the community raising up the next generation. So that's why it was such a big deal. 
Weddings are a big deal, for, not just for the couple getting married, they're, um, they're a big deal for the entire community. In fact, I probably would even say that they are a bigger deal for the entire community. It's a bit like a local government putting on a free event uh, for the entire community to raise awareness for something. Um, except that in this case, it's the bridegroom and his family putting on a wedding feast for the town. And at this wedding, we know that Jesus was invited, and his mother was invited, and so were his disciples. Who knows, maybe they're just inviting anyone and everyone. Um, even, even the travellers were passing through. We also know from the story that a disaster happens. The wine runs out. And I do call it a disaster, and I'll explain it in a minute. This is bad news. Because in those days, wine was the single most important element of an ancient feast. When the wine runs out, the party is practically over. At this point in the story, the wedding feast is practically over. And to make things worse, this happened in a shame culture. And in a shame culture, if a person or family doesn't meet the social expectations of the society, it will spell disaster for everyone. So this is a really, really big deal because they're going to heap a lot of shame if um, things aren't sorted out. It's a bit like um, Europeans when they invite guests to dinner, they always cook twice as much food because there's a fear that the food's going to run out or we can't provide. When I grew up, there's so much food on the table and that, that's what it is. It's like we can't food, we can't meet the social expectations. We heap shame on us. We don't know why the wine ran out, but we do know it did. And the consequence of something like this to happen was disastrous. What happens next in the story is Jesus' mother tells him that the wine has run out. He responds by saying, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. <coughs> woman? Might seem a bit strong to call your mother woman. <laughs> Imagine that for all your mothers out there. What if your kids come to you and say, Hey, woman, give me my dinner. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> But um, in those days, in those days, I mean, this is the equivalent of man. So some commentators will say this is kind of the equivalent of man. So if you um, read something like an NLT, New Living Translation, you might see it says, Dear Woman. They're trying to soften it, just to try to um, bridge the ancient Middle East culture to ours, to make that connection a bit, a bit clearer. So we're not, you know, up in arms. Not like that. So I don't think we need to draw too much attention to this, but what we do need to draw attention to is what Jesus says. He says, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It seems a bit strange, doesn't it? What's he talking about? My hour has not yet come. Now I think he seems a bit distressed in just the way he responded. What hour is he talking about, and why does he seem 
distressed. So let's have a look at it, this hour. We read about the hour more so in the Gospel of John than in the other Gospels. And when he says that hour has come, we learn that he is betrayed and crucified. We read it in Matthew. We read it in John. We read it also in John. This is what is meant by hour, that he is going to die. My hour has not yet come. But why is he thinking about this? Our wedding. <clears throat> so when his mother tells him that the wine has run out, he is caught in a moment of deep thought. And I reckon he's thinking about his own wedding. You know, think about it this way, he's about 30 years old, he's single. And he lived in a culture that put a lot of emphasis on weddings. He would have felt cultural pressure. A lot of people are coming up to him and telling him, well, when is it your turn? When is it your turn? When are you going to get married next? Look how old you are. Still living at home. When are you going to get married? Reminds me of my, what my dad used to tell me, you know, he used to say, I have a friend, he's got a daughter. <laughs> Would you like to meet her? <laughs> right. there's, there's that cultural pressure. Maybe, maybe he's thinking about his own wedding. You know, there is going to be um, quite a wedding feast for the marriage between Christ and his church, the bride. And he's thinking about that. And maybe more importantly, he's thinking about what he must do before the day of his wedding, the hour of his death. Maybe this is why he's so distressed. So what he's saying here is, what he's pointing to is that someday in the future, he will be a bridegroom himself. And at his wedding, he will be the true bridegroom. And he will provide for his bride and guests. But before this happens, he must die. And that's why he's distressed. That's why he responds the way he did. His mum tells the servants at the feast to do whatever Jesus tells him. And soon after, he makes more wine for the party. He provides for the guests the wine necessary to keep the party going. He does this to point to a greater reality, one where he is the true bridegroom of a greater wedding feast. So this is the first point, that Jesus is the true bridegroom, the one who provides. Now let's look at our second, the true wine. He provides wine for the feast, the true bridegroom sipping the true wine. This is what he came to do, to sip the true wine. What do I mean by true wine? So we're going to dig a little bit for this one. John describes the story in um, chapter 18 but of Jesus' betrayal and how Peter violently cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. So this was at the time when Judas and Bob came to arrest Jesus and Peter was uh, all emotional pulled out a knife from his sheath and cut the ear of the servant of the high priest. Just, you know, irrational behaviour. Peter was uh, to be known for that kind of behaviour. 
And um, Jesus tells Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Get that? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Throughout the Gospel, Jesus refers to this cup that only he can drink. A cup he asked his Father three times to remove. Before he was betrayed, he asked, Take this cup from you. And then he submitted himself to the will of his Father. This cup is the cup of wrath, not just any wrath, but the wrath of God for your sins and mine. And we remember this cup that He drank on our behalf every time we share communion. As we drink the wine, we remember His blood, a symbol for His death. For Him, He drank cup of curse. For us, we drink the cup of blessing. And that's what Apostle Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a cup of blessing. The true cup that Christ drinks is a cup of wrath that kills him, the wrath that was meant for us. He consumes. And the cup that we drink is a cup of blessing because we remember that he experienced the wrath of God in our behalf. So now we might be thinking, where is this in the sign? How does this connect? How do we know this from John chapter 2? Well, what does Jesus instruct the servants to do? He asks the servants to fill six stone water jars with water. Each jar holding about 75 to 130 litres, so they're pretty big. That makes it about a total of 450 to 678 litres in total. Well, because it turns into wine, if you were to think in wine bottles, it's about 600 to 900 bottles of wine, so that's a lot. He asks them to fill them up to water, and they do, up to the brim. But more importantly, what sort of jars are they? They are jars reserved for the Jewish rites of purification. When Jews went to worship, they would wash themselves ceremonially. And this was an act of cleansing that represents their sinfulness and the need to be cleansed before they can be embraced by God. And this is this is how we know what this means. When Jesus turns the water into wine, he is making a declaration that the cup that he will drink will be the cup that purifies his bride. He's using the symbol of this, these jars as a sign to show us what he's come to do. It is a sign pointing to what he must experience before he is to be married to his bride, the church. Jesus is pointing to the death that he will experience so that all who believe will have abundant life in him. It is a sign of what he came to do. 
So, true festive joy. We know that the sign points to the true bridegroom, who is sipping the true wine, and he provides true festive joy. Now the servants were instructed to draw some water and take it to the master of the feast. Now the master of the feast had an important responsibility. His job was to make the party a great party. His job was to make the party a great feast. So this was really, really important. So if the wine was out and the joy is gone, well, he's to blame. If um, things aren't moving by day three or day four, People have been tired. His job is to make things going. His job is to make the party great, to bring the joy. But who ends up making the party great? Who ends up making the party a great party? Who ends up making the party a great feast? Jesus does. He not only provides good wine, he provides festive joy. He keeps the party going. The master of the feast approached the bridegroom and says to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You have kept the good wine until now. Jesus' wine is so much better than the previous wine. got a speeding ticket and someone came to you and said, I'll take the blame for that and pay your fine. How would that make you feel? It would make you feel good, wouldn't it? Feel happy. Well, we've all sinned against God and we deserve his wrath. But Jesus came to us and said, I'll take that wrath on your behalf. Isn't that something worth celebrating? Doesn't that bring us true festive joy? Doesn't it make everything so much better? It takes the weight off our shoulders. We're ever wanting to try, thinking that we can do it on our own. And remember, this is just a sign of things to come. Not only do we experience true festive joy now, it's only going to get better. If Jesus is the true bridegroom waiting for his bride, then we are to expect that the greatest wedding feast in all of existence is yet to happen. Alright? It's yet to happen. This is a sign of what he has come to offer. A sign of true festive joy. So remember what I said earlier? Signs are a lesser reality pointing to a greater reality. 
And in this sign, we see Jesus who he is. The true broken who provides salvation. We see him for what he came to do. To drink the cup of wrath. The true wine to purify his bride. We see what he came to offer. True festive joy to all who believe. Now, do you believe? Do you believe he is the true bridegroom? Do you believe he came to sip the true wine? The cup of wrath on your behalf. Do you believe he came to offer true festive joy? If you do, I invite you to sip the cup of blessing. I invite you to partake in this experience of communion. And I invite you to live your life for Him. He's the one who provides. And what does He provide? He provides Himself for us. To conclude, I want to finish off with a quote by a 20th century pastor and theologian. His name is Edmund Clowney. He said this in one of his many sermons. Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all this world's sorrows, sipping the coming joy. I'll read that again. Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow. So that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Let's um, bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are here before you. We wish to thank you for your word. Thank you for the sign. This sign, the lesser reality that points to the great one. And uh, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the true bride. We thank you for what he came to do. And he drank from the, from the cup that only he can drink, the cup of wrath. And that he offers us festive joy. We see in this story that the man of sorrows emptied himself on that cross. bore our shame and our sorrows and gave us full joy full to the brim and we ask you Lord that you help us to remember this every day in our lives help us to apply it help us to live by it and may it be the source of our joy in all our circumstances we love you, Lord. We wish to thank you for the food that you provide this lunch. And we thank you for the time we can spend to share communion with one another. We thank you for all things, Lord, in Christ's name we pray.